ourselves. Today, we're lifting the veil on an industry that is influencing our culture every single day. Have you ever read a genius bestseller and think, who is behind this book? Well, chances are that person is my guest today, Joshua Lysak, one of the top ghostwriters in the world. He's a Wall Street Journal bestselling word wizard. He has over 80 books under his belt. And it's not just about writing. He also teaches writing to others. He's a certified hypnotist with a hypnotist masterclass in writing. Check it out because he's been teaching this to people all around the world. Strap in folks, because today we're diving into the hidden world of words. My guest is Joshua Lysak. So the, the ethics of ghostwriting, would you say they're a necessary evil or um, a misunderstood art? Ghostwriting is usually in the eye of the beholder. So some people will define ghostwriting as, oh, so someone else writes your book for you, writes your content for you, and they slap their name on it. They may not know what was in there. You may have made stuff up as the ghostwriter. That's one That's one definition of, of ghostwriting. That tends to be inauthentic, and the clients will usually have a non-disclosure confidentiality agreement insisted upon because so much of their personal brand is inauthentic. And if it, if it got out that even one aspect of their work was uh, an authentic thing and everything comes crashing down and then they wonder public wonders so what else have you acquired what else did you purchase uh what else did you have done for you the way that i do ghostwriting is a collaborative approach that's a bit more like guided authorship in which i have weekly conversations with the author to get their stories ideas experiences but I've ghostwritten and authored a combined 88 books now, uh, both fiction and nonfiction, for both the, the, the who's who, the e-listers, and little great-grandmas who want their offspring to know what it was like growing up during the war, that sort of experience. I say everything in between. My preferred method of ghostwriting is more like, as I said, guided authorship. Where is the author's story? But they've never written a book before. They don't know what goes first. They don't know how to transition from chapter to chapter. How do you even structure a chapter? All that. And that's what the expertise for, for me is, uh, is for. And I liken it to a CPA or to an attorney. The CPA and attorney's job is to know how to do it. It's to structure the contract. It's to structure the, the tax return. It's to make sure everything is above board and industry standard. But it's not the author's, or rather, it's not the accountant's uh books it's the clients books it's not the uh attorney's ip or their contract it's the client's contract it's much the same way with authorship so it's not it's not my book even though i help them uh produce it just because someone is not an expert book writer does not mean that their story does not deserve to be heard have you ever turned down a client so i mean you've had these grandmas and you've had uh Christian preachers, I think you've spoke on in the past and, and all different kinds of people in between. Is there anybody that you've turned down? And if so, uh, why would you do so? Yes, I typically these days turn down AWFLs, which is an acronym, A-W-F-L, which is the Affluent White Female Liberal. The Affluent White Female Liberal, AWFL for short, is known for not paying her bills. So she, she tends to uh, sign up as many service providers as she possibly can and not pay them. Just before this conversation began, we were talking about uh, Hillary Clinton. And if you Google Hillary Clinton ghostwriter, you will find uh, perhaps several dozen links as she is notorious for not paying her ghostwriters for her books. And so she walks away with a seven or eight figure book deal. And the ghostwriter who actually wrote the book walked away with zero dollars. That is the story of the affluent white female liberal. Uh, liberal. 
So I do everything in my power through my personal branding and through my network to repel offals as much as I, as much as I can. So effective marketing is also effective anti-marketing. So the better you are at anti-marketing, the better you will be at, at marketing. And that polarity is not often discussed. And I leverage that reality for great effect and efficacy for my authors and their personal brands. 88 books. Is there anything uh, that you've written either in books or articles that, that, that you would take back? Not that I would take back, but there have been many clients um, I wrote things for that I knew to be false. And not just false, but the, uh, the exact opposite of the fact, what, what, is, what is in evidence. But it's not my book. And I explained, I would explain to the author, uh, you know, this, the, the, this isn't true and, and here's why. Don't care. My book, my message, I believe it. So from the perspective of the, of the client, they weren't necessarily technically uh, lying or being deceitful. They were, they were putting out what they believed to be true. Uh, whether or not that was actually true is, is different. And that's what taught me that reality is a bit more, subject, uh, is a bit more subjective than many of us are uh, led to believe. <laughs> and that what, from my perspective, is objectively false for that person is subjectively true, meaning they will organize their life around and their brand and their business around the insistence that belief X is true, even if not only is there no evidence for belief X being true, but there is significant evidence that belief X is false. From their perspective and their client's perspective, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whatsoever. They, they believe it to be true. And so it, it, it is true for them in that way. So ghostwriting is actively impacting our culture. When we talk about things like authenticity, how does that jive with something like, like ghostwriting? That makes you think of the stories that have been forthcoming about Britney Spears and her memoir that has recently come out um, in kind of advanced reading copies and people are posting us pictures of the pages online and trying to write advanced reviews of the book uh, prior to its release at the time of this recording. For the months leading up to the publication of the book, Britney had said in a number of interviews that it was, it was so difficult to write this book. And it was one of the, her, her, her greatest uh, accomplishments writing this book. So, so difficult, blah, 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 blah. And of course, if you are, have a trained ear, you know that when a celebrity says it's really hard to write this book, that's their way of saying, I am a really difficult client for my ghostwriter. That's a tell. And so I heard, okay, so she didn't write the book. She's just uh, a difficult client for her ghostwriter. Sure enough, right up to the release of the book, Britney Spears, it's revealed, has had a ghostwriter for her book. So when a, when, a, when a celebrity or public figure insists they wrote literally every word of their book themselves, that's a tell that they have a ghostwriter and that they're a pain in the ass for their ghostwriter. And I, I've been there many times with, with various clients, public figures across different domains. Um, and I can, I can confirm those who are most vocal about not having a ghostwriter tend to be the worst ghostwriting clients. Would Britney Spears lose her essence using a ghostwriter? How does that work? I don't know if Britney Spears has an essence. A. B. The ghostwriter's job for a public figure is often to write the novelization of the individual's life story. This is why Prince Harry's ghostwriter that he selected was a novelist. A Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, let's say, but a novelist nonetheless. And that's interesting that when someone wants their biography written, their autobiography or their memoir, and they want it produced by a ghostwriter, they're better, they're better off, uh, frankly, hiring uh, a novelist, someone who can fictionalize the person's story, who can kind of invent details that seem true enough, 
from the reader's perspective, and it communicates what you might call the emotional truth of the situation. It may not be anything close to what literally happened, but the author will say, well, this is what happened. And then the ghostwriter will hear that and say, that's awful. Nobody wants to read that. That is so boring. What if we had it be this? And what if it, you, well, instead of your, your brother saying it, what if we had your mom say that? Oh yeah, that's a lot more interesting. And so that's how ghostwriters work with authors to make their books more interesting and their stories more sensational. Even if it's not literally true, it feels true to the audience. And that's what matters from a public figure's perspective. So maybe Britney Spears' ghostwriter has her dancing with knives. Maybe that's it. No. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, have you ever felt like that you've manipulated or been the puppet master of public opinion in things that you publish? Oh, yes. How so? It's through market research. Funny enough. It, this, this, not, this is where we get, we can just, we can, just, we can do a zoom out from the domain of ghostwriting to the domain of market research. Okay. Market research is useful because you can figure out what people want that they haven't gotten from others. So I do not want to cast myself as some sort of a manipulation strategist or some sort of like mass persuader because my work is mostly in various uh, niches or niches depending on who you ask there's another good yeah. example of subjective truth it's pronounced niche well then why have i in my entire life always ever heard it pronounced uh niche me too right and yeah. it's a that's an example of subjective truth but then that yeah. it's fractal and so that that issue of subjective truth expands to uh to everything and so with this question of market research how does that connect to convincing people something is true at scale, you find out what people want to accomplish in a given industry. What are the businesses doing to help those people? What are the public figures doing to help people get results? In what ways are those individuals dissatisfied with the results that they have? You figure that out, and then you can figure out exactly the verbatim they're using to describe their desires that have been unfulfilled by previous attempts, solutions, products, services delivered by other services providers and brands and so on and so forth. Once you know the verbatim, you can begin to see what their anchors are. Anchor is a term, also key is a similar word that's used in both neurolinguistic programming and hypnosis to describe uh, an existing trigger that exists. And if you know how to activate that trigger, meaning there's an anchor that already exists, a key that already exists. I think I like key the best because what that means is the person is the lock and you have the key. And you can unlock that and you can get, frankly, you can, you can drive people's behavior, individuals, groups, and even the masses in, in an industry by figuring out what their keyhole is, by figuring what their anchor is, by figuring out what the verbatim is that they use to describe what it is that they want. And you can unlock it. So the one who has the key makes the most money. Do you think that's done in mainstream media? Like that sort of hypnosis is that? Is that deployed in just what we see every day? Yes, and it's used by both the conservative parties across the Western world and in the liberal parties across the Western world and in all of the various lesser third third parties and coalition groups and what special interest groups, activists, so on and so forth. And the way that it's used is they find what is the most activating language. So they will look at the past and they will see what has activated the most people? What has triggered the most people to action? Well, we'll just use that language again, right? And we see this with, um, let's say, left-wing groups, liberals, progressives, whatever terminology you want to use. 
whenever they want to get out the vote, they will say something like, uh, Republicans are trying to take your reproductive rights. Well, I don't want my rights taken. Look, they're trying to roll back the clock. They'll use that language as well. Roll back the clock. Uh, they'll try and they'll, they'll, they're taking us back to pre-civil rights. They want to. They will use this sort of language uh, to describe their thing because it activates rights as a word. They're trying to take your rights. And left-wing ideologues care a lot about the perception of having rights. And so what you'll find is negative rights versus positive rights. The language of negative rights is used for positive rights. For, reader, for, for listeners who don't know the difference, a negative right is something that the government is not allowed to take from you. So the freedom of speech is a negative right, meaning the government is forbidden from taking your right. Of course, we no longer have free speech in, the, in, in any way, shape or form in the Western world. So it's a right that's, that's been negated, unfortunately. But a positive right is something that has to be provided to you. So often that language will be slurred together in marketing, aka in propaganda, aka in um, campaigns, where they'll say, you have a right to housing, you have a right to healthcare, and they're trying to take away your rights. Those are actually positive rights, meaning the government is required to provide you healthcare. It's, it's required to provide you housing. Those are not real things, of course, because you have to take that to take from somebody. You have to seize someone else's capital to provide that. Um, but that sort of language of rights, if you think about what, what it means to exercise your reproductive rights, the reality of that is so different from the description of that language, of those words, in the same way that you have a right to housing. In order to fulfill the right to housing, it's so different from the usage of the word rights and what's conjured by that. It's, it's activated. So the use, use, use of the words to try to take away your rights, it's a key end of the keyhole that activates action. And so just by using that language, uh, left-wing organizations, politicians, and so on are able to activate, they're able to trigger in mass a lot of people. And you figure out what the different keys and keyholes are in different industries through market research, you can write the book that unlocks all of those to maximize revenue per reader, which is the most important statistic that there is, from my perspective, when it comes to commercially viable publishing, profitable book publishing. Revenue per reader is they buy your book, they buy your master classes, they buy your course, they get you as their certified coach or their high certified coaches, they'll pay you your $500 an hour for consulting, they'll join your group community, so on and so forth. So your revenue per reader might average out at like $500, for example, across everyone who's bought your book, even though your book is $5 on Kindle. Well, that $500 came from you unlocking all the keys to activate action in order to ascend inside of your funnel. That's the best way to make the most money as a reader. People, some people have a problem with that. Oh, that's not fair. That's not ethical. Um, but you can always this you can always uh, reframe what those words mean in such a way that it sits well with you. That's really interesting. I, I love uh, how you describe that the keyhole, and that's sort of a it's like a reverse engineering for a market strategy. You, you know, you see um, just by paying attention online, using these various analytical tools, and and just paying attention to the conversation, you, you can find what those what those keyholes are. That's really interesting. Um, have you? Ever gotten a request from a client that was like super weird? And uh, if so, what, what, what was that? I was had a client, many of my uh, regular uh, fans will recall that I had a client many years ago who believed himself to be the reincarnated Jesus Christ. That was his story. 
and, and he was 100% certain that that was his life purpose, his life calling in his, in his reality. That's what you might call a subjective truth. I don't think he was. Between you and I. Okay. I also had, and you mentioned, you asked earlier what sort of people I don't work with. So there was an opportunity to write a big five publisher. I don't want to name the publisher. But it, was a, it was going to be a big five published book for a near Tempest selling author who wanted to write a book in a nonfiction category that's entirely unrelated to politics. That's important because of what I say next. The author's mission with publisher's blessing was to have it be an anti-Donald Trump screed. Despite not being at all a, pol a politics book, that was the objective. It paid okay. Not, not great by my standards, but okay for enough for, for, for most people. And it paid better than some projects I've taken in the past. That's for dang sure. But I said no to that. Oh, but you know, you could have done another one of these big pie publisher books. So I've, I've done big publisher books. I have ghostwritten mainstream bestselling books. And I worked with mainstream bestselling authors. And I can say, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. What's not worth it, Joshua? It's not worth it when you are going that far. Everyone has a line. Everyone has a price What I, is what I have found. And in order for me to do something that I deem this is going to make the world a worse place, my price is a lot higher than that. Oh, Joshua, you have a price. Everyone has a price. For some, it's their family being threatened, for example. And this is where we begin to think that perhaps mutually assured destruction is a, is a better strategy. Because right now, in the context of this conversation, all is happening kind of outside of publishing. There's a lot of, that's socio-political, locally, globally, right now. And there's, it's deemed that one side is being mean and the other side is being nice. Well, and if we're just really nice to the mean people, everything will be fine. It is, it, let's say, the, the pervading belief that many people have. And yet, it doesn't seem that that's the way that reality works. That seems like it's a win-lose proposition. And I think more and more people are realizing that that is the case. And unless you use a persuasion technique called reciprocity, oh, you want us to lose? We will make you lose even harder. If we lose, you're coming with us and it's going to be even worse for you. That strategy, that this is either going to be a lose-lose or it's going to be a win-win, uh, is a better filter of how one should act. And in my case, I am not going to lose unless the author loses as well. And, and what that what that means is that the price is too low to compromise on my own uh, personal uh, personal morals. It's it's too low. And I might be one of the only people in public that's willing to say that we all have a price. And the people who are most most vocal about opposition to that assertion, the price is lower than mine. That's for sure. Well, I mean, human behavior is driven by incentive, and whenever that incentive is, you know, to a certain point, you start weighing those those odds. Um, Josh, where, uh, Joshua, where could people find you? Where, where should they look for you online? My best shenanigans, most up to date, are on the 
Twitter, now called X platform at Joshua Lysek. My main place of doing business is LysekGhostwriting.com. Okay. All right. Hey, man, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're really busy. Sure thing. Thank you. All right. My pleasure.